There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, and in this special episode, you can listen in to a conversation between myself and the barrister and broadcaster, Rob Rinder, in front of a live audience. The setting was JW3 in North London, and the subject was my new book, Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. I hope you enjoy it. Good evening, and um, I think it's right to say, well, we're um, in our week leading up to Rosh Hashanah, and you have uh, a, a new book. And rather than starting at the new year, I'm going to start at the end of your book, uh, Israelophobia, which we're here to talk about. And knowing that even amongst our Jewish communities, just as was just said, this is a subject of profound challenge, difficulty, and contention. I want to do something unusual at the beginning of our discussion and start at the end, bearing in mind that I hope as we talk to one another and above all else, I, and we all listen to you, understand that the overriding principle of the Jewish communities and those amongst us tonight, the heart of your work, your mission, is the spirit of Derek Eretz, of respect for you, for your work, and for each other. And with this powerful, profoundly powerful polemic, it leads very musically into this crescendo, the last moments and breath of the book at page 191. What we must work towards is a future in which Israel is neither demonized nor fetishized, but treated for what it is, remarkable in many ways, troubling in many others, but ultimately with its heroes and its villains, just like any other country. Only then will we see the end of Israelophobia. We'll come on to. I'm going to ask. Come on to help us define what Israelophobia is. But 
You've spoken to a number of communities. I want to start, just as we were inside, asking about what it feels like to speak here at JW3, and to what extent that's somewhat different. Well, thank you, Rob, and, and welcome, everybody. Nice to see so many people here. Um, and that's, is that, that's a spoiler, I think, isn't it? You, is that a spoiler? Yeah. You spoil <laughs> but it's still worth knowing how we lead to that point in the book. Um, but it is, it is different speaking to a Jewish community, I think, uh, but perhaps a little bit less different than it was when I, sta I started the book before all of this, and you know what I mean, before the Balagan, before January, before the political crisis, when it was a much easier book to write. And if the book, if, you know, if Israel was still under that same government then now, it would be a much easier conversation to have. And I think there would be more of a distinction between mainstream audiences and Jewish audiences, because Jewish audiences would generally be much more coherent in their views on Israel, or at least the fissures would not have opened up quite as widely as they have. Mm. Whereas now, it feels actually that speaking to a Jew Jewish audience is even more terrifying than speaking to a non-Jewish audience because passions are understandably and correctly so high at the moment. Mm. Um, so, you know, so for, from that point of view, uh, it's a strange time. Mm. But at the same time, I feel that it's quite a good moment to write the book because what I'm definitely not trying to do is tamp down criticism of Israel. That's the first thing everybody always says. What I'm trying to do is allow for space to be critical, to debate, to speak reasonably and to disagree and all the, all the rest of it uh, without straying into articulating um, Israelophobia, which, as I'm describing, is the newest form of anti-Semitism. But let's start at the beginning and try to understand how it is that you unpick that, which you do with, I have to say, the forensic writing and mind of not just a journalist, but a, a lawyer too. Um, on page two, you go right for the jugular by basing everything you say with an example um, and a fact. You speak most especially about Israelophobia influencing this new form of hate, and you refer to Home Office figures, some of which will be shocking, none of which will be surprising, I suspect, to any of us or anyone who has a child that goes to a Jewish school that has to have the courage of sending a child to Jewish school, knowing that they go at the back of a parent's mind every day risking the lives of their children. That's a lived experience to co-opt the words and language of many, of parents who simply want their children um, educated. 55% of Jews said they've suffered racism compared to 50% of black Caribbean and 30% of black Africans. The evidence for equality national survey reported. Anti-Semitic incidents are soaring across the Western world, rising by 36% in 22, excuse me, 2022 to hit an all-time high in the United States alone. Now, we're going to come on to talk about how you define Israelophobia, but to what extent do you think criticism of Israel, especially recent criticism from the left, has influenced that rise in extraordinary hate crime? I think to a great extent. To a great extent. I mean, you know, David Baddiel's book, um, what's it called again? That one, you know the one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It's great. He's a friend. It's a wonderful book. Um, but You're that, quite critical that, that of his book, work. Well, come on, I'm that quite, I am critical of his work, <laughs> um, but with his permission, he's read it and he approves. Okay. Um, so, uh, but he he um, talked about anti-Semitism, particularly on the left. But he avoided the topic of Israel, 
Uh, and his mechanism for doing so was by saying that he doesn't feel any connection to Israel, he's not responsible for Israel, and to accuse him of being so is racist, as he puts it. And so that, he said to me that that, in a way, it was, was his, it's a tactic to, um, to allow, to when people try to come at him with anti-Semitism masters, Christians of Israel, he's able to say, well, don't look at me, you know, I'm talking about anti-Semitism. But that allowed what seemed to me the main battlefield to be vacated, because it seems to me that the main uh, language in which anti-Semitism is expressed these days is the language of uh, criticism, if we can say that in heavy inverted commas, of Israel. Uh, you know, anti-Semitism over the years has had the ability to shapeshift according to the dominant ideology and the culture of the day. As Rabbi Sachs famously put it, in the medieval period, it, was, it took on the language of religion. It was a, basically a religious hatred. Jews were seen as the Christ killers, and attacking them, murdering them, expelling them, and so forth, was almost seen as, as, as a, some sort of sacred duty or legitimized by religion. Fast forward to the 20th century, and Jews were hated in the language of pseudoscience. It was, a, it was the age of science, the, the emergence of science. And so pseudo-racial science allowed Jews to be unfairly or wrongly, I mean, it, needless to say, categorized as subhuman. Mm -hmm. And now it's co-opted the language of social justice or politics, I suppose. And so all the sins of the social justice movement, the worst sins of the social justice movement, such as white supremacy and colonialism and apartheid and genocide, are all used as a cover to legitimize attacks on Israel. And I feel that is where anti-Semitism is now fi finding its main foothold. And to not address that is to not address really the, the heart of the beast. And at the center of it, you use a quote which is well known, but to some extent represents that enduring conspiratorial and consequently illogical complexion to all of it. Dara Horn's memorable quote, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. That's right. I mean, that, that really does sum it up. I mean, you know, actually, for people who are steeped in anti-Semitism, they, they, they don't like both. I mean, you know, there, there is this great sort of industry of, of Holocaust fiction and films and musicals that we reported recently in Argentina. Um, uh, the Holocaust culture, this sort of slightly saccharine, what Elie Wiesel described as kitsch mm -hmm. um, Holocaust um, depictions that people love and can't get enough of, from the tattooist of Auschwitz to the boy in the striped pajamas and, and everything in between. Um, but then when, you know, the Israeli Air Force swoops over Auschwitz to a, to, in a statement of never again, People don't like that so much. And it reminds me of actually of, of Roald Dahl. You know, he was famously anti-Semitic. And he famously said, he criticized Jews who were killed by the Nazis, saying that if I was in line for the gas chamber, I would have taken two of them or three of them with me. I wouldn't have just gone meekly to my death. But then he also loathed Israel. And so he hated both the Jew, Jew, Jewish people as victims but also when they refused to be victims, he hated that too. Isn't that the inescapable nature of the history of anti-Semitism? They're damned. We're damned as a people in both ways. Damned for being too poor. Damned for being rich. Damned for being capitalist. Damned for being communist. Isn't that the condition that makes the entire dark puzzle of anti-Semitism insoluble? Exactly, because I think that the thing about anti-Semitism is that it never really relates to real-life Jews and real people. And the same with Israel. 
It's relating to a projection, to an exaggeration, to a mental fabrication of the Jew as hated as the eternal capitalist, hated as the eternal communist, mm -hmm. you know, hated as the victim, hated as the victor, hated as the, as the occupier and the coloniser, but also hated as the kind of subversive international kind of dark hand behind, uh, behind international finance and media and so forth. And it's similar, it's a similar thing happens with Israel. I mean, Israel, there, you know, as Saul Bellow wrote, and I've been quoting him a lot recently, there are two Israels in a way. The first is the Israel of facts that is territorially insignificant. It accounts for about a quarter of a percent of the entire Middle East, pretty small. Um, population about the size, about the size of London, I suppose. It's smaller. Uh, economy about the size of Nigeria. Um, you know, in terms of the, all the people killed in all of Israel's wars for the last 75 years amounts to about 86,000. By comparison, in Iraq in three years, British Ameri and American forces killed upwards of 200,000 in three years. You know, the partition of India led to a million deaths. The Iran-Iraq war, Iraq war of the 80s, a million deaths. I don't have to go on. So on the one hand, it's small and insignificant. On the other hand, as Saul Bellow says, the Israel of culture of the imagination, uh, in his words, he says, is as broad as all of history and perhaps as deep as sleep. And that, you know, Israel, from the, from the very beginning, the Christian culture took the Jewish city and the Jewish homeland and made them the holy city and the holy land mm -hmm. and took a Jewish prophet and made him the son of God. And yet the chosen people committed the ultimate betrayal to kill the son of God. And from then on, this, this duality of fetishization and demonization, um, the duality of fetishization and demonization was sparked. And you see all that uh, today as well. So both with regard to the Jewish homeland and the Jewish people, people relate to their demonized mental image of people and country. And that's where the hatred lies. Now, in your opening chapter, you say that um, the Jewish state here, the hostility heaped on the Middle East only democratic state, and you talked about just now its relative size, and you compare and contrast it to a number of other conflicts, to the satellite states, the Arab states, the undemocratic states around it. You talk about numbers, for instance. But you say this, um, the hostility heaped on the Middle East only democratic state and the only Jewish country on the earth dwarfs that directed at the cruelest autocracies. It is held to standards expected of no other state. Jake, I wonder to us and to anybody listening, isn't that the price of building a liberal democratic state under the rule of law? That you are correctly more likely to be susceptible to criticism than those who trample on the rights of their own citizens? Good question. And, you know, the Jewish people gave the world monotheism and a book of law and a cultural richness that hasn't been paralleled um, and brought democracy to the Middle East. And so you're right, standards are pretty high. And Israelis, certainly, you know, the Israeli founding fathers and traditionally through Israel's, his Israel's history, have embraced that to some extent, setting a very high moral bar. And we can talk about that, about the, the IDF and their moral code and how it compares to other countries around the world. Um, but I think that, and that, that, that's not, I'm not saying that having high standards is a bad thing. I mean, if only other people had high standards, that would be an improvement. Um, but, you know, as again, Saul Bellow put it, that uh, Israel is often looked upon to uphold the moral standards that other countries have dumped. Mm. And I think that's the point. The point is that the double standard is not simply having high expectations. It's having high expectations that are so high 
that Israel will always fall short, will always be the bad guy, will always be demonized. It's part of the process of demonization. It's not coming from a place of, of, of friendliness. It's coming from a bad faith criticism. It's holding Israel, it's part of, you know, uh, it's not so much high standards, it's intensity of criticism about every single minute element of Israeli culture, Israeli life, from, you know, from, from its sports to its winemaking to its army. So it's not just that it's susceptible to criticism because it's an open, free society, is your point. In fact, you call it uh, a new bigotry, the beginning of your opening chapter before you set out what Israelophobia is in a very clear and concise way. You say this, this new bigotry, you can deliberately call it that, by contrast, is primarily political, <coughs> enabling it to recruit progressive Jews as alibis, for those amongst us who may consider ourselves to be perhaps progressive Jews, whatever that means. And so consequently, it's vital to find a new way to identify and respond to this new intolerance. And it begins by giving it a name, Israelophobia. And you split that into three constituent parts, demonization, weaponization, and falsification. How did you come up with those three parts, those three ingredients for the alchemy, the recipe, let's say, for this new bigotry as you describe it? Well, partly I was looking for the rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I should say, before I talk about that, that, that I'm not a, I don't mean to insult anybody who's progressive. I'm not saying that all progressive Jews are alibis of Israelophobia. Far from it. Don't get that, that idea, please. Um, what I'm saying is that uh, there's a certain kind of, uh, of hard-left hard politics that is inherently uh, Israelophobic and anti-Semitic. And because it's talking in the language of politics rather than the language of race, certain Jews who are so far to that end of the spectrum can be tempted to go the whole hog and became, become admitted to, the, to that political milieu uh, by taking on the Israelophobic language. And they can feel they can do it because it's not about race. It's not about me. It's about this other thing, the Jewish homeland, which I'm separating from myself. And you're careful to say that um, at the beginning, demonization. And I want you to help us understand in your thesis what you mean by demonization. One of the things you're quite careful to do is to throw it clear at the beginning of that chapter by saying this, holding preferences within a respectable spectrum is perfectly natural. Whether that's on the transgender debate, immigration, abortion, or Israel, that's not to say that everybody is equally right. There are those with whom I profoundly disagree, whose views are nonetheless reasonably held. Many people here wanting to become better advocates for the state of Israel, will read this book, reflect on it, and perhaps want to use it to become better in their community to speak about Israel, to justify its existence, to talk about how it is perhaps exceptional in that it is a recipient of disproportionate and racist criticism, perhaps in the way that you describe. So the question is, what is a reasonably held view of the state of Israel which doesn't necessarily support the government of Israel? Well, I think this is a really important question. It's become so urgent in, the, in, in, the, in recent months. Um, and I do think that if people are interested in advocating for Israel or winning the argument in favor of Israel, then the ability to criticize Israel reasonably and acknowledge that there are flaws and, 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 and darknesses and mistakes and so forth is vital, because otherwise you come across like a nutter. 
<laughs> you come across as being, you know, an evangelist and someone who doesn't listen to sense, and nobody, you can't win debates by coming across as being boneheaded and deaf to common sense, you know. So, um, but I think that really the, the question needs to be reversed, not so much what is reasonable criticism, but what is unreasonable criticism. When does criticism begin to stray into um, Israelophobia and demonization? So I want you to focus, if you can, because you're so specific about splitting it into these three parts. Mm. How is Israel demonized? Let me just push you in this way. I mean, you refer with some substantial and substantive evidence on the experiences that the uh, newly appointed at that time um, Israeli ambassador to the UN had when he joined. Um, 80% of um, practically the work, all of the work that was dealt with in the so-called human rights committees were directed at the state of Israel. The language of colonization and so on and so forth that are used and deployed against the state of Israel is part of that demonization. Help us understand here so that we might become better advocates, let's say, to better understand what you mean that specifically um, contains Israel as part of that demonization and where we find it. Okay. Well, it's related to what you said earlier about, <clears throat> about high standards and demonization there. Um, demonization, I mean, you know, in the medieval times, Jews were almost literally demonized. They were seen as demons, horns and, you know, tails and seen as demonic. And fast forward to today, and the image of the Israeli soldier is like the modern day, or the settler even actually, is the modern day demon. And the way in which that perception is supported is by this disproportionate focus on Israel's flaws to magnify them out of all proportion and then add in some untruths and negative propaganda, which we'll come on to later. But for example, you mentioned the UN. So the, I'm sure a lot of people will know this. The UN Human Rights Council has an agenda, has a, a code of conduct, uh, and Article 7 of that mandates it to discuss one human rights issue in the world at every single meeting. And no prizes for getting, guessing which issue that is. And it leads to absurd situations, such as in 2019, during the height of the Uyghur genocide, and I use that word accurately because it's been endorsed by the UN as a genocide. It has concentration camps, it has forced sterilization, it has torture, and so on, so on and so forth. At the height of the Uyghur genocide in China, Uyghurs are Muslim, don't forget, um, there were demonstrators outside the meeting where the UNHCR was convening, HRC was convening, begging, it to, begging the delegates to talk about this genocide. And they didn't. Instead, because they were mandated by Article 7 to talk about Israel-Palestine, they debated the misuse of social media by Israeli politicians. It's absurd. And as a result, it comes as no surprise that Israel has been condemned by that body more than double, double the amount of times any other country. The UN General Assembly, which is much bigger and more significant, um, has condemned Israel last year 15 times. The rest of the world combined was condemned 13 times. It's, it's clear, it's clear to see this. You know, last year, um, 180 Palestinians were killed by Israel. Mm -hmm. 120,000 people lost their lives in Ukraine. 180, 120,000. Yet if you look at Amnesty International, which was formerly a respected human rights NGO, 
its Twitter account uh, of the Amnesty UK branch condemned Ukraine twice, condemned, condemned Israel 24 times. Mm. I mean, this sort of stuff is obvious. And if you're, if you're constantly, obsessively criticizing, focusing on Israel's negativity, some of which are exaggerated, some of which are untrue, some of which may be legitimate, and you're blowing it out of proportion to the extent that if it was geographical, Israel would occupy most of the globe, um, then obviously the consequence of that is for the general perception of the public to see it as an, an evil, demonic, uh, genocidal, uh, you know, colonial white supremacist state. To what extent do you think that part of it, and it's touched upon lightly in the book, is that the reality is for most people who live in the West that if they're likely to have any fear, be perhaps existentially threatened by terrorism, those who are not part of the Jewish community, but those who might know little about all of the geopolitical turbulence in the world, that the chances are for them that there is a good chance that if they're going to be the subject of um, terrorism, it's likely to be the result nowadays of Islamofascist violence. And at the heart of that, and we should believe them when they tell us that the central mission of that, the underlying rationale, is the existence of the state of Israel, that you can have a view on Israel because it does impact the day-to-day -day lives and the fears of ordinary people in a way which doesn't necessarily mean that they're anti-Semitic. It's because it interferes with their sense of safety and it's consequently the one thing they may know about. Yes, I mean, the, the link between um, Islamofascism, which is a nice term, I, I, which I wish we'd have had this conversation before I would put it in the book, um, uh, Islamofascism and, and anti-Semitism and Hitler is a fascinating one that I draw out in the book. Um, and we've just had 9-11 yesterday, yes, yesterday, a couple of days ago, a few days ago, um, yesterday, yesterday. Let's start that again. Mm. Yesterday was 9-11. Um, and uh, it reminded me, really, of the uh, little-known anti-Semitic motivation behind 9-11, which the, um, the uh, court case in Hamburg demonstrated with the surviving members of, of, of the cell, of the Al-Qaeda cell who perpetrated 9-11. When they gave evidence, and when people who knew them gave it, witnesses gave evidence, they made it very clear that they chose New York because it was perceived as a center of Jewish power. It was motivated by anti-Semitism. And that can be traced back in a fascinating way through history, which I will do in a couple of sentences because it's quite detailed. Mm. Um, but actually, if you reverse it round, so wartime, Hitler, as people probably will know, collaborated with um, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, who was the leader of the Palestinians, who was an extremist. He went to Berlin during the war to translate Nazi anti-Semitism and propaganda into Arabic and pumped it into the Arab world, where it sparked this chemical reaction with Quranic anti-Semitism and, 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 and extremism to become this horrendous ideology that swept the region, led to the rejection of the partition plan and all the rest of it. That ideology then transmuted into the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, Husseini was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, friends with its founder. Its founder, Hassan al-Banna, was succeeded by Saib Qutb, who people might have heard of, who was the most influential um, Islamist thinker uh, probably ever. His writings informed Sunni jihadism. 
So from the Muslim Brotherhood, which was inspired by Hitler-style ideology, which had been blended in with Islamic tropes, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood spawned Hamas. If you look at the Hamas Charter, Article, I think it's 24, cites the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It says that as we've seen in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the Jews are plotting to take over the Middle East. So it's literally Nazi anti-Semitism in Arabic um, informing the ideology of the terror group that's attacking Israel. It also made its way to inform Al-Qaeda, and we've just talked about that, uh, so, and ISIS. So these groups can be traced back ultimately to in, in some ways, not only, but in some ways, to Hitler and to Nazism. And there's a direct line that comes through there. Mm. Um, and you talk about that singular demonization as a starting point, that Israel is set apart from other nations of the de facto liberal West, uniquely for criticism, disproportionate criticism. And there are two examples of that. Um, well, I see the two, there are several throughout the book. Here's a very powerful one. In 2022, it emerged that the Royal Air Force had killed at least 64 children in Afghanistan, four times the figure that it had previously acknowledged. That story was reported on the morning news in Britain, but had vanished from bulletins by the evening. It was not hard, excuse me, it was hard not to wonder what the reaction would have been if it had been Israeli bombs killing Palestinians rather than British ones killing Afghans. Exactly. And, you know, there are so many atrocities that take place all over the world, including against Muslims, including against Palestinians that are not perpetrated by Israelis that pass people by. For example, in the Syrian civil war, the Palestinian refugee camps in Yarmouk were barrel bombed by Assad. Did anybody care? I didn't see 180,000 people in Hyde Park demonstrating about that. It just seems like it's not about the, the suffering and the deaths of, the Mus of Muslims. It's about who's doing it. But pushing back against that, and it is right to say um, that perhaps, well, you make a case with evidence about the disproportionate, I use that word a lot, way in which Israel is cited uniquely for what's described in your book as demonization. The other day you were on Twitter complaining about whataboutery, and you give a very powerful parable about that whataboutery. Why does it matter? when every life at the center of the Jewish faith and our philosophy, whether you're a cultural Jew or otherwise, is the sanctity of life. Why is it important? Why do numbers matter? Well, you're right. I mean, it, you know, the Palestinian um, conflict, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, might claim fewer lives than so many others, but tell that to, to a woman who's on the West Bank, whose son has just been killed by a stray Israeli bullet, doesn't feel that way to her. And I'm not saying that uh, supporting the Palestinians is a bad thing to do, uh, or, or anything like that. Um, uh, I think that... Um, I've lost my thread. What was the question again? Well, the question is... Um you talk about numbers. Numbers, yes, numbers, that's right. And it's true that, that every, single, um, every single life, of course, is valid and sacred and must be upheld as much as every other life and is equal and so forth. But you were talking about whataboutery. Whataboutery is an accusation which has been uh, thrown at me quite a lot since the book's come out a few days ago. And it, that the implication is that what you're trying to do is deflect from Israel's criticism by saying, oh, what about them or what about them? And my response really is that if you say that you cannot make any comparisons between the criticisms that other countries receive and the criticism that Israel receives because it's whataboutery, 
How is it possible to expose hypocrisy? Mm -hmm. It's impossible. I can't show that Israel is facing hypocritical criticism by people who are quite happy to turn a blind eye to the, mass, to the genocide of the Uyghurs or the treatment of the Rohingyas or the bombing of, of the Palestinian refugee camps by Assad or whatever it is. Uh, but they pick on Israel because there's another motivation there. What? And you can't, ex you can't expose that hypocrisy mm -hmm. if every time you try to, they say, oh, what a battery, shut up. What's your response to organizations um, uh, that work in human rights, Amnesty amongst them, let's say first amongst them, uh, a number of people who worked in Israeli Amnesty International, as you refer to in your book, were not supportive of a number of the reports that have been published by that organization. Um, who say, well, you can spin more than one plate at the same time, and that we do. It's just that Israel gets center stage in the global media because it bleeds, it leads. And we come back to this, as we said before, it represents a central existential threat to, to the West, and that's why people feel that it's disproportionately reported than it actually is in reality. How do you respond to that? Well, I think the scale is, is extraordinary. I mean, if people wanted to say, you know, Israel is, um, you know, it's at the cornerstone of Christian civilization, it means something to all of us, it's a liberal democracy in the Middle East, so we need to hold it to high standards, it reflects our, uh, upon our own shortcomings, all those sorts of questions. And then you, you, then you came to the conclusion, so we focus on it disproportionately a little bit, a little bit more than other people, then you could maybe buy it. But to this scale, I mean, does that really, is that sufficient to explain all of the statistics and things that we've talked about at the UN, at Amnesty, and you know, I mean, go to university campuses and see how many countries are subjected to apartheid week. Countries where there actually isn't apartheid are not subjected to apartheid week, like China and the Uyghurs. There isn't a Chinese apartheid week. Mm -hmm. There isn't you know, an apartheid week in other places around the world where they, where they have actual embedded racism. Only Israel. And that sort of disproportionality and demonization and obsessive focus, the point is that these are all justifications for, the, for, for something that's much darker. And what that is, we all know it's been around for 2,000 years. And whether this is a new mutated form of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish racism, one of the things that you're careful to craft in this chapter on demonization is this. None of this is to downplay the Palestinian desire for statehood, which has huge support internationally, including in Israel. It would be wonderful to see a peaceful and prosperous state of Palestine. What does that look like? What are its borders? Well, <laughs> see, there, I mean, I'm reluctant to go into this because um, I feel that my, my book is really, I'm quite careful. I don't want, it's not supposed to be a case for Israel. I mean, that's been done. Uh, it, what I'm trying to do is identify the Overton window in which debate is reasonable and what lies beyond it, where it tips over into Israelophobia, into articulating anti-Semitism. And so, you know, my views and feelings on the settlements, the conflict, the Palestinians, the end game, we can talk all about that, but it's, it's not really what I'm trying to do with the book. The book is sort of a, it's supposed to be putting a kind of a frame on the debate. Like a, it's like a meta book. It's a book about how to conduct respectful debate without that hatred, rather than going into the weeds on it. I, we, we can if you want to, but um, shall we?
I mean, <laughs> sadly, we don't have uh, a five series. There are lots of weeds yeah. to go into. Um, <laughs> but the next element of um, Israelophobia is weaponization. And I think this, I have to say, is the most fascinating chapter for me and for everybody who I really advise to read this book. Because what it does is it um, unpicks the dark spaces and the cracks where this exists and how especially it's emerged in the liberal West. And you reserve a lot of time talking about how this has fascinatingly emerged nowadays from the political left. Um, uh, there's a great deal you very, I have to say, persuasively write um, in the more than dotted line, the clear connection between conspiracy theory and the left, which takes us back to millennium of Jewish hate to the elders of protocols of Zion and beyond. The claims can become even more unhinged than that. You referred to something before. Guests on BBC programmes have stated that the Jewish state has no culture of its own apart from what it takes from the original peoples. Mossad has been accused of infiltration, of infiltrating a shark into the Red Sea that ate a German grandmother. <laughs> During the late Queen's Jubilee, a council in Nelson, Lancashire, an old mill town with a population of 29,000, more than 3,000 miles from Jerusalem, flew the Palestinian flag instead of the Union Jack. No other democracy is targeted in this way, and no dictatorship either. Um, I wonder if you could talk about how this weaponization has especially captured the political landscape of the left and the Trojan horse that you describe as social justice? Sure, I mean, we, this is um, <clears throat> one of the unfortunate uh, aspects and surprising aspects in some ways of Israelophobia is that it seems to have mainly gained a foothold in Britain on the left. On the right, you know, uh, anti-Semites on the right are less coy about using the word Jew. On the left, they kind of want to use the word Zionist instead. Um, and on the left is where it's become the most pernicious, I think, because it's convincingly using the Trojan horse of virtue, the Trojan horse of social justice language, to masquerade as something that's legitimate. And this is what anti-Semitism does. It makes you feel like it's the right thing to think. You know, in the Second World War, killing Jews was the right thing to do because they were the source of all evil, so it was a brave and correct thing to do. In the, in the medieval times, it was the right thing to do was to target the Jews because they were the killers of Christ and all the rest of it. These days, if you look at the terms in which Israel is, is, um, is criticised, they are pretty much all the greatest sins of the social justice movement. It's criticised for being a white supremacist state, which is probably the cardinal sin of the social justice movement, even though more Israelis are non-white than are white. It's criticised for perpetrating a genocide on the Palestinians. In fact, 42% of Britons at the last count thought Israel was waging a war of extermination against the Palestinians. That's how effective this propaganda is. Well, if it's a genocide, then explain to me why the Palestinian population has increased fivefold since Israel's establishment. Pretty bad genocide. No concentration camps, no execution pits, no evidence. It's a lie. Um, it's accused of being colonialist. Again, another key sin of the social justice movement, even though historically Israel is a post 
colonialist state. Anybody who knows history knows that it came from the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the British Mandate, and as you know, amid the carve up across Europe and further afield, where the great powers were drawing new boundaries and creating new nation states based on ethnicity, Israel was part of that whole movement. It was a post-colonial state, not a colonial one. In fact, the only, the only sin they haven't managed to pin on Israel, I think, is slavery. Um, perhaps that's because the Jews were on the other side of it a while ago. Um, and so uh, in this way, the, all of these things, if you say you're, you're able to say, I stand against colonialism and white supremacy and genocide, of course you do. Everyone does. I mean, that, you, that's something you can campaign on. But that language, that virtuous language, has become a Trojan horse for racism, for anti-Jewish racism. It's, it's extraordinary the extent to which the anti-racist movement has become a ventriloquist dummy for anti-Jewish racism. Help us understand that in the context of Jeremy Corbyn and his rise to the forefront of Labour politics and the enduring impact that's had on British political life. Well, I think Jeremy Corbyn, he, was, he, he epitomised this phenomenon, didn't he? Um, it's this toxic blend of, of, inher of cultural inheritances that have come together in, in this moment, came together in that moment and are still lingering. It was old-fashioned socialism that Jeremy Corbyn represented, which was seeing the world not through a moral lens, as most of us would relate to it, but through the lens of Marxist theory that saw capitalism as the greatest evil. So therefore, you support anti-capitalists even if they happen to be authoritarians. Uh, even if the underdog is massacring people, you still support them. Even if they're terrorists, you still support them. So it's that, that sort of hard-left socialist tradition combined with the tradition of, uh, new, newer tradition of identity politics, uh, which has grown up in America with critical race theory and all the rest of it. Go back to the days of Martin Luther King, and Jews stood shoulder to shoulder with him, with the civil rights movement. You know, Jewish synagogues were bombed and attacked by the Ku Klux Klan because they sided with the civil rights movement. Once Martin Luther King was supplanted by Malcolm X as the figurehead of that movement, Malcolm X, you read his, his autobiography, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in there. He talks about Zionist dollarism, for example, and, and, uh, and, and said, uh, suggested that Jews only supported Martin Luther King because they were trying to get the deflect attention from themselves onto, onto the, the, the black man or whatever, you know. So that and then that, combined with critical race theory, suddenly put this great weight on identity politics, whereby this hierarchy of racism developed, whereby black people, you know, this idea of Patricia Budle Padler, that ra racism is prejudice plus power. Uh, and so if you don't have the power, you can't enact racism. Therefore, black people, by definition, don't have power. They've got to be the victims. And whenever you hear about power and you hear about Jews, you know this is where this is going. So Jews were not able to be victims of racism because they were perceived as being powerful on the back of that anti-Semitic, uh, age-old anti-Semitic trope. There was an incident in Crown Heights some years ago where Jews were being, Orthodox Jews were being attacked in the street. And the local community leader uh, said that it wasn't because of anti-Semitism, it was because Jews are hyper-white. <laughs> not only are they white, but they're so powerful that they're hyper-white. And so this toxic identity politics is blended with that old-fashioned socialism that represented by Jeremy Corbyn and his ilk, which we'll talk about in a minute, the origins of that, mm. and led to this, this, this cultural moment where the hard left has become infested 
with identity politics and, is, and with, with anti-Semitism that's projected onto Israel, the Jewish state, which has those same tropes of powerful, right. you know. Um, it's very important as part of Jewish conversation that when you meet somebody who has a different point of view, uh, you meet them and you hear what they say and make the assumption that they're a person of goodwill. You'll have known that from your days uh, as a husband boy. And it's essential to any conversation that leads anywhere of any value. Applying your mind, if you can, for a second, of the left, many of whom think of Habonim, FZY, who at their core, at the heart of their central mission and their constitution, a constitution written that, uh, sadly, the Israeli government didn't get round to doing, otherwise perhaps we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. But these were movements of the left that ostensibly built the foundations of that nation. It is at its heart through the kibbutzim, through the people who fought for that earth. Sure, a state that's rooted in Zionism, but it's very much a Zionism of the left, by the left, and in its vision of tikkun olam, to repair the world for the left. People like Jeremy Corbyn, if you asked him to think about Herzl's mission back then, would have stood shoulder to shoulder with him. How and why do you think that's changed? And do you think people of the left can justify themselves when they say, I don't like Israel, but I'm not anti-Semitic? Yes, or how, as Howard Jacobson put it, I don't hate Jews, I just hate them by the country. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a really fascinating point. I mean, you're right. In the beginning, Israel was the darling of the left. In fact, the reason why it doesn't have a constitution, interestingly, was because, well, for, for leftist reasons, mm. because originally it was supposed to, Ben Gurion said, we don't want to write a constitution now because we want to allow progress to happen and for the younger, you know, it was a progressive ideal. Um, anyway, so it, it was the darling of the left. So the, the first country to recognize Israel de jure was, was Russia, was Stalin. Um, it was a kibbutznik ideal, as you said. People walked around with copies of For Whom the Bell Tolls in their pockets and rifles over their back in the early days. Um, and, but you know, but, but the, everything changed as a result of the Cold War. Uh, so in the, after 1967, that really was the, 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 the pivot point where Stalin, where Russia began to really invest in the Arab world. And America became... Uh, the, uh, the, the, the main supporter of Israel, and so Israel ended up on that side of the Cold War. And that was the cue. We're going to be talking... This is the, the, the third... Uh, um, falsification. Falsification, the third element of Israelophobia, which is um, articulating the propaganda of the Soviet Union and of the Nazi era um, in your criticism of Israel. And so in the 60s, the Soviet Union... Um, turned on this huge and powerful disinformation machine which pumped propaganda uh, not just into the Middle East but around the world and into the West. The team of anti-Israel propagandists were known as Zionologists. And they came up, they, they, they got together and cooked up numerous tropes and lies about Israel which they seeded into the public consciousness around the world by way of thousands of hours of radio broadcasts, hundreds of books, um, thousands of pamphlets, uh, and espionage, mm -hmm. people of influence, via their embassies. 
Um, there were newspapers published in Britain, in France, in the United States, by the Soviet Union, which included the grossest Israelophobia. Um, in fact, sometime in, in, in 1973, a, a French communist was arrested for, inc for inciting racial hatred. He was working for the Soviet Union embassy and published this, um, this newspaper that was filled with Israelophobia. And he was, uh, he was found guilty of racial hatred, but they found out that the material in the newspaper was, it was taken from czarist anti-Semitism black hundreds sort of traditional anti-Semitism, all they had done was take out the word Zionist, Jew and put, it, put the word Zionist in there. So it was right-wing, proper anti-Semitism that he'd taken, changed the words around. Even the typos were the same. <laughs> At the heart of the book, again, um, you invite us to think you provide a number of statistics in uh, support of all of the points you make. Rob, do you mind if I interrupt for one, just sure. to finish that thought, just for one, do, one more yeah. sentence? Sure, sure. I just wanted to, just to conclude that, that bit with, uh, fine, but, <clears throat> that... Um, that, 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 that the weight of that Russian propaganda that, that was spread across the West resulted in various tropes and lies becoming mainstream today. And you'll be familiar with them. Israel and apartheid state, that was created by the Russians before the occupation, as it were, of the West Bank. Years before there was a single Israeli on the West Bank is being accused of apartheid. Genocide, Zionism is racism, the Israelis are Nazis, white supremacy, all of these ideas, genocide, all of these ideas which we've talked about, which will be familiar to you, they're so familiar to you because of the success of Soviet propaganda in the 60s and 70s. Well, at the end of that chapter of falsification, um, the last of the elements, demonization, weaponization, falsification, you refer to Orwell. As Orwell put it, one of the marks of anti-Semitism is an ability to believe stories that could not possibly be true. With the Israelophobic virus already infecting great swathes of the liberal left, this relentless propaganda effort has a receptive audience, packaged as it is in the language of anti-colonialism, anti-racism, and anti-fascism. It's been hugely effective in co-opting well-meaning Western liberals. I'm going to ask you about those well-meaning Western liberals and taking them at face value and at goodwill and listening to the accounts, let's say, of, as you refer to in your book, the different educational outcomes, the different lived experiences of Palestinians, whether that's true or not in other satellite states, which it undoubtedly is. Um, can you acknowledge that, as you write in this book, a lot of the experiences that I'm referring to are described here as based in security concerns, but nevertheless, is it okay to take the view that you make substantial and substantive points that we can learn from in this book at the same time acknowledge that there are real human rights abuses exacted on the Palestinian peoples by the Israeli governments and that we need to do better as a country and as a people. And I use the word we, unlike Stephen Fry and unlike David Badil, who you resile from criticizing on this stage. But he says in this book, can you say to it that he says Israel can go and fuck itself? I'm not sure it's possible to have a Jewish identity in this country, one that spouses the safety of our community and be a cultural Jew and tell Israel to go and fuck itself. I agree. I mean, I, again, I, I think that opinions about whether or not Israel has committed human rights abuses, that's 
slightly out of the scope of the book again. It's, it's going into. I don't opinions. think that's right. I Do mean, you, you, you refer to it in this book a lot. You yeah. talk about. Well, I mean, in the book, and you I mean, talk about. I mean, you can't throw it clear in the book and say, "Well, it's justified by security." And then move on to, in a very persuasive way you do, talk about Israelophobia without acknowledging that some of that happens. What you're saying is that it's disproportionately reported and consequently that disproportionate reporting, I keep using that language, is essential and valid evidence for how it's taken a foothold in this new morph Fine. I mean, let, of anti-Jewish racism. Okay, I mean, let, let me put it this way. I mean, the, the book opens the... the, the um, Epigraph is a quote from um, <clears throat> Zev Jabotinsky, mm -hmm. where he says that as one of the first conditions of equality, we demand our right to have our own villains as everybody else has them. Mm -hmm. And there are villains in Israel. We know that more than ever now over the, over the past year since January. Who are they? Who are the villains? <laughs> Do I have to name any? Yes. Ben Gavir is a, is a villain. Smotrich is a villain. There are villains. The, the, those guys who rampage through Huara are villains. Um, you know, and there, there are and there there are there are villains in Israel. And I've travelled a lot in the Palestinian territories. Both, you know, in my job as a reporter, I know people there. I've got a, I've got a, actually got a friend in Gaza, believe it or not. I know people on the West Bank. Not I'm not in touch with them much, but I know them. I've been through you know up and down the West Bank. I was there with my family just a few weeks ago, actually. And life there is not very fun for a lot of the Palestinians. And I'm not laying all the blame for that at Israel's door by any stretch of the imagination. The Palestinian Authority is a horrendous, a horrendous um, uh, authority under which to live. It is corrupt, it is brutal, it is repressive, and it is fascist, and it is in, filled with incitement against the worst kind of base anti-Semitic Israelophobia against Israel. If you're in, under any doubt of that, watch that video that, of, of Abbas giving that speech last week, and you'll see what I mean. Well, taught and in so, school, and you're mindful to tell us that Abbas is now, um, what year in his tenure after a four-year election? Exactly, exactly. He's, uh, yeah, 18th year of his four-year term, I think. Right. Now, um, as I say, I started, before we go to our audience, with um, some hope, with some optimism. And it's interesting, your book leads into that. And the last chapter is eight giveaways and five pressure points. And to that extent, though it's the smallest, uh, smallest chapter of the book, it it's perhaps the one that's the most useful as takeaway for each and every one of us. What can we learn from it? You've diagnosed the problem but you don't leave it there. You help us find a way through, a way of unpicking, unlocking why this new hate exists and perhaps thinking about it and using it in a positive way to go and speak about Israel moving forward. What should we know and what should we do according to this book? Well, I mean, I think that just having the knowledge in there helps a lot. You know, if, you've, if you've got the, uh, you know, at your fingertips a few of the statistics and the arguments, that really helps if you're, going, if you're in, in a debate with those, particularly with those well-meaning liberals that I've talked, that you, you mentioned earlier. There's a whole load of people who are good people but swimming around us in the culture, in addition to anti-Semitism that's been there for so many centuries, there, there is this, the, these, these tropes which have already originally come from the Soviet Union, which have picked up pace. If you're not a specialist, you're not particularly knowledgeable about Israel, you just know that it's a bit of a dodgy, unpleasant place, and you can absorb it. And uh, you know, I think we all know people who've um, come from that point of view, visited Israel, and suddenly thought, oh, hang on a minute, 
it's not how I thought it was. It's not a war zone, and it's not an evil place, and so on and so forth. So um, at the end of the book, there is this list of, of, of questions that you can ask people to, uh, who are expressing hostility towards Israel to try to open up some of the, some of the uh, topics of debate in the book and, uh, and have an opportunity to begin to move their minds a little bit if they're, if they're talking and speaking in good faith. Um, and if they're not speaking in good faith, they'll be unable to respond. So, for example, ask them, can you, okay, you're saying Israel's got lots of bad qualities. Can you acknowledge that it's got some good qualities? Such as being um, very, you know, it's, it's the gay capital of the world, I suppose, I mean, let alone the Middle East. It's one of the gay capitals of the world, Tel Aviv is. Can you acknowledge that it's got equality, you know, it, it, that, that's a good thing, for example? And if they're filled with Israelophobia, that will stick in their core. They won't be able to acknowledge even well, One of the things you say in your book is that um, the type of person you're referring to, for whom Israel is always part of, the demonic, excuse me, the demonic member of nation states. There is no decency or good. Um, gay rights is termed as pinkwashing. Pinkwashing, yeah. There's Being so many, vegetarian so many... is greenwashing, and so on and so forth. That um, it, it forgives Israel nothing. It has become the demonic totem. As you're exactly. Right. I mean, you can't. If you're Israeli, you can't eat vegan food without vegan washing. You can't look after the environment without greenwashing. You can't make wine without wine washing. You can't play sports without sports washing. You can't be gay without pink washing. Everything's a washing. Mm. You know what can you do? You can't live, and it's like, you know that is the quality of anti-Semitism that, that that as Sartre put it, I quote in my book: mm. just by breathing, the Jew is doing something evil. Just by being himself, he is being evil. If the Jew Jew builds a bridge from the first to the last span, it's bad. It's it's negative, and that is the quality of the demonization of age-old anti-Semitism that's now expressing itself in Israelophobia. The last question before we open it up to to our audience um, tonight. The or excuse me today, the court case began, and I'd advise anybody, if you've got the time, it's actually live tweeted the colloquy between the lawyers uh, and the Chief Justice and a number of the members of the Supreme Court. I have to say the, the, the court case that's uh, happening today where the uh, Supreme Court of Israel is making a determination on whether the Knesset has exceeded its power by limiting the power of the Supreme Court to, it's more than only in Israel, by the way, it's part of our unwritten constitution as well, it's the same principle. Um, and uh, whether or not the court has the ability to overturn legislation on the basis of reasonableness, let's say. We have a similar but limited power here in the judiciary. It's very interesting to watch, and it's been very interesting and I think extremely hopeful and a reason for optimism as the left, as the political classes, as the whole of Israel have been invested in politics again, for, whereas for a long time they'd been undividedly indifferent. I think it's an exciting time to see Israel finally politicized again in a positive way in that regard. And I wonder whether, despite what looks like the darkness and the possibility of the greatest division in the state of Israel's history, whether you, like me, nevertheless feel optimistic about its future and for the possibility of peace. Goodness, I, I, um, I would certainly like to be optimistic. Um, and I, I'm not pessimistic. Uh, it's a troubling time. And, you know, but I do know that the Jewish people have survived worse. And I know that the Israeli political system is a mess and needs to be reformed, and it will take a long time. But maybe this is part of Israel politically growing up, you know, developing 
It's a young country, it's 75 years old, so you know, one would hope that for all the convulsions of the current politics in Israel, hopefully it will come through with a, with, with a more functioning democratic system. And on that note, um, I'm sure there's a lot of questions. Um, don't worry if we can't hear, we'll repeat them. But, um, sorry, oh, there's a, there's a microphone in the audience. It's a Jewish crowd, I'll definitely have to repeat them in any event, <laughs> I promise you. But, uh, okay. Ten minutes. Ten right. minutes or thereabouts, sorry. Yeah, right at the back or at the front. <laughs> there's a lot. I think they're going to start at the back and move forward. Um, oh. You're not uh, leaving because you're Bruegger, are you, Madam? That's the only thing. Oh, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the only thing. That's the only... Uh, good. That's a legitimate excuse. <laughs> oh, thank, thank, <laughs> thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I found your term about the like Trojan hatred. I found that really interesting. Um, and especially as a young person on social media, um, particularly singling out um, apps like... TikTok or Instagram, I've seen a lot of especially growing hatred that's mainly anti-Semitism, just like disguised as what you call is Israelophobia. And it's from my experience of seeing it, it's starting from younger and younger ages with lots of people and a lot of miseducation. I was wondering, um, do you think that will be a bit of a downfall in um, just development of um, the fight against anti-Semitism? That's a really important question, bearing in mind the Trojan horse is social justice, which has captured the imagination and, of course, the campuses um, of, of young people where minds are forged and they go out into the world. The Trojan horse meaning that through the prism of social justice, through the veneer, through the sanctity even of that activism, you get to be not just anti-Israel, but consequently anti-Semitism, not necessarily by realizing it in the first place. And the question here is, how can you be a great activist? How can you respond? How can Israel, not just reading this book, do better? How can we do better to react to stop that Trojan horse? Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. The thing about Israelophobia, or this position on part, very highly partisan position on, on Israel-Palestine, is that it's one of us, it doesn't exist in isolation culturally. It's one of a suite of beliefs, which has been called luxury beliefs by the American commentator Rob Henderson. Luxury beliefs, because they are taken not because they are filled with moral conviction, but because they give you a sense of who you are, give, give other people a sense of who you are socially. So you're, you're elite, you've got these luxury beliefs. So you will have a position on um, transgenderism, gender, on race, on colonialism, on our history, on slavery, and on Israel-Palestine. And all of those sort of fashionable orthodoxies uh, combine in people's vi uh, impression of themselves they want to project onto society, into society. And that's particularly the case the younger you get. And it's uh, sort of fostered in schools as well. And so I think that in a way, the, if you wanted to not be Israelophobic, but you still have the other views on, on gender, on race, on slavery, and all the rest of it, it's quite hard. You need to kind of have all of them, you know? And I think that there are signs that young people are beginning to get a bit tired of that. I think that it's, it's got a bit extreme. It's being pushed down kids' throats a lot. And there's, gonna, there's a bit of a backlash that's showing. But overall, this is what they talk about, the culture wars, this kind of great cultural battle between this ideology and the ideology that's, that's held by the vast majority of people. 
I think it's a really great question. I'm hoping that young people um, like you will have the courage and above all else, uh, the talent and the energy to use those social media tools to write back, to fight back and to respond. Because the Without getting is... into a Twitter war. Right. <laughs> Learning how to make a good point, hearing, listening, even acknowledging the pain. And on the other side, making the point by saying, let me tell you a story. And here it is. And I think your generation has the greatest gift, the greatest capacity, and the greatest buffet of talents to deliver that on behalf of all of us and for the State of Israel. Uh, yeah, lost. <laughs> keep going. Are we being slung out, or can we carry on until they're in trouble? Um, we need some more time for the quick pit bulls. Oh, yeah, but don't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, keep, keep them coming. Three more quick ones. Yeah. We'll... Do we need the microphone? I'm sure we can hear and I'll repeat them. Oh, you're recording. Oh, there's evidence. That's a terrible <laughs> thing. <laughs> well, I agree with everything you say, Jake, but the difficulty I have is you can have this conversation about hypocrisy and about Jews being persuade, um, portrayed as um, super white, um, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But people will still come back and um, get uh, some kind of like moral authority by saying, well, what about the Palestinians? And even when you point out that, you know, let's face it, Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and, you know, somebody mentioned uh, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, when you point out that these people are Islamists, they don't even support a Palestinian nation state. They support international Islamism. Then people say, well, you know, when I disagreed with um, America's invasion of Iraq, then, um, you know, I didn't get into criticizing what the regime was. Um, and, um, you know, so that's what I find difficult because you point out how bad the leadership of the Palestinians are because I do think there was a time maybe in the 60s yeah. when there was a progressive element. But Is now, there a question coming? Now people say, well, you know, I, I was against Afghanistan. So how do you counter that? How do you counter it? Well, I think that's a good question. I think sometimes I think that if... When you come up with, against people with very, very uh, hard and fast views, you're not going to persuade them. Um, and if you've got the energy to engage, it can be worth it, because sometimes it might sink in later. But either way, I think it's important to remember that there are some people who will never be persuaded. There are some people who are on your side already. It's the people in the middle that matter. And that I think most people are in the middle. That's why we yeah. made that work. BBC uh, documentary, it's called The Holy Land of Me. Huge and controversial. It's an, Im, uh, it's an imperfect symphony, to be sure, if it is one. The thing that I wanted from that was to enable people to hear and listen and to make a point, which has three elements. One, I hear you. Two, here are some facts, much of which, many of which are deployed in your book. The second is, let me tell you a story. Could be one thing about the state of Israel and what it does. It may just land, it may just enable somebody to hear, perhaps to change the complexion of how they felt about it in the first place and walk away and go, it's complicated. If nothing else, I think you've done a real service. And this book is part of that, I think. Should we have one more? Can I ask 
Oh, a few more. Unless you're, you get your time to sell your books. We're, 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 no one's going anywhere. <laughs> Promise. It's, it's going to be a monster. Oh, it's going to be a monster hit. Oh, anyone that wants? Yes. I feel like it was here. Yeah. Two more. All right. Well, Jake's book, I have to say, is quite clear at, uh, at making the case much more eloquently that that's not quite right. And um, I'd like to answer that by saying it's worth reading that book for an essential correction. Um, what he's saying, sorry, I don't put words in my mouth, you, yeah. you should answer it. Uh, but it's, it's quite important to, to, to reflect on that question and, and take the time and trouble to read the book and what Jake is saying. I mean, the only one thing, the thing I would say in response to that is that I think... Um, it's important not to lose faith in Muslims. And uh, talking about Islam in general, I think, is, is a mistake. There's Islamism, which obviously is a, is a, is a bad problem. And don't get me wrong, in the, in the Muslim world, there's much more anti-Semitism than not. But it's not, you know, it's not a done deal. There are Muslims who are not anti-Semitic, who stand against Israelophobia, actually. And there's no reason why a Muslim has to be, is condemned to be anti-Semitic and Israelophobic and part of the problem. And uh, I know Muslims who are decent and, and we, we need to be focusing on the good guys and being hopeful and supporting them and working together with them rather than elaborating all and tying them with the same brush, in my opinion. Right, last question. Is it last question or two? Two more. Two more. To what you've just said, just one question about Islam and Islamism. Do you know any Muslims who actually support the nation state of Israel? Number yes. One. And number two, oh, sorry, number two, you made a statement that unless you present the argument for Israel with some critical facts, you'll be treated as a nutter. In my experience, that's not what I found. And I can tell you that the other side will give an uncompromising uh, view of Israel which allows no good. And so, of course, what you're doing is that the ones trying to present the case are immediately on the, on the back foot. So sure. that's... Okay, two questions there. I mean, the first one, um, do I know any Muslims who support the State of Israel? I mean, I know Muslims who fought for the State of Israel. Um, well, a few, but you said, do you know anyone? My answer is yes. Uh, and there are lots of Muslims who support the State of Israel. Uh, I mean, they're vastly outweighed by, the, by those who are against it, but there are, there are, they do exist. And um, in terms of, um, you know, allowing for criticism of Israel, I mean, it, it depends on your style. That, that's my style. You know, I, I, what I'm trying to do is not to 
win over the people who will never agree with me and have a yelling match in Hyde Park. What I'm trying to do is talk to people in the mainstream who aren't bigoted, who are decent people, who have an intact moral compass, who haven't got a dog in the fight, but they've been, they've been uh, surrounded by Israelophobic narratives so much they've kind of absorbed it without thinking. And what they need, you know, just have a reasonable discussion with them, show them some facts and take them to Israel, and then they suddenly find that you know, they agree with you. Yeah. And doing the work within communities to be part of that advocacy. Yeah. And you'd be surprised the number of people that are prepared to listen in parts of the world where, especially in Gaza, where there is, without question, fatigue at that government. And how dare you, when schools are closed, when people are economically suffering, try and divert attention from the horrors of what they're experiencing socialism, but experiencing socially, economically, culturally, by virtue of the state of Israel and the state's deflecting attention and taking away the freedom of their daughters, for instance. The idea that the Muslim world is one thing or that it's too stupid amongst its people to understand what its governments are doing is a great calumny on a great people and one that we need to reflect on. Last question before book selling. One more question before book selling. And buy the book, it's great. No, no, no? okay. Uh, we're 20 minutes away. Um, it's a Jewish friend. Thank you, uh, Jake. Um, we could have spoken all night. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant. You've been listening to a special bonus episode of Let's Talk, the Jewish Chronicle podcast, with me, Jake Wallace Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle. We'll be back soon with an exciting new series. In the mint. In the meantime, why not listen back to our six previous episodes featuring interviews with David Baddiel, Melanie Phillips, Giles Corran, Daniel Finkelstein, Rob Rinder, and Rabbi Jonathan Romain. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.